So here's some exciting news from On Being Studios. We have just released a beautiful new podcast, Poetry Unbound. It's hosted by Padraig Otuma, the wise Irish poet and theologian you may have heard me interview before. Each episode is a short yet unhurried, contemplative yet energizing immersion in a single poem. The first season features poems by Joy Harjo, Tracy K. Smith, Ross Gay, Emily Dickinson, and many more. I'm making Poetry Unbound a ritual for my days. And you can subscribe to Poetry Unbound wherever you find your podcasts. And please join me in sharing this news far and wide. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. The House on Mango Street by the Mexican-American writer Sandra Cisneros has been taught in high schools across the U.S. for decades. She's received a MacArthur Genius Award, a National Medal of Arts, and many other accolades. Sandra Cisneros grew up in an immigrant household where it was assumed she would marry as her primary destiny. I love how she strikingly, fiercely, has given voice to the choice to be single, and single or not, to know solitude as sacred. It was a lovely and lively experience to bring her to our studio on Loring Park in Minneapolis with an audience that included many delighted first-generation Latina teenagers. I think it's very muddied in your 20s. I think the 20s is so hard for women. I know, it's so hard, and you get told that it's your, the best years of your life. It's the and worst. It's just not true. Yeah. yeah. No, it's the worst. <laughs> but I, told, I always yeah. tell my students, don't worry, it only lasts 10 years. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This conversation with Sandra Cisneros was held in honor of the nonprofit Centro Tyrone Guzman, which supports the Latinx community in Minneapolis. She's a dual citizen, has lived in many places in the U.S., and currently makes her home in Mexico. So, Sandra, this work of conversation that I do, I feel like every time I start to prepare for a conversation, it's just this adventure and this discovery to see what it will be interesting to pursue. And I have to say that, you know, it was so wonderful to, to really delve into your writing and, and also how you've written about your life, I mean, what you do, right? That, that your entire body of work and the way you think and you write is kind of about the adventure of being alive. And hmm. yeah, well, that's <laughs> one thing that occurred to me. So, I mean, what I'm saying is, I always think about how I'm going to organize a conversation. And with you, the idea that kept coming to me is there's this line of Annie Dillard, and I forgot to look it up, but it's something like, We are all, you are made and set here to give voice to your astonishments. And I feel like as I look at your body of work, um, it's these varied astonishments that, that jump out at me that are about your life, but also about, about everybody's life. And so that's kind of how I want to move through this this evening and see what happens. Okay. But you had a reaction to that, so I'd love to hear uh, it. Well, um, I'm a little astonished by that statement. <laughs> uh, I think um, I've never given up feeling astonished by life. I think that artists are children that never grow up, mm. and I'm at 64, I'm on the verge of turning 65, I'm even more astonished by what has come my way, just being here, and being your guest, when I say who has been your guest in the past, is a great honor, and I think of myself not with my awards and my accomplishments, uh, but I think of my biography of failure. Mm. You know, so mm. you know when someone's reading my accolades, I think, oh, but good thing they're not mentioning my fifth grade report card. <laughs> no. uh, but I think of myself as that person mm -hmm. that I was, and I still am that person. Um, and I'm always astonished that I'm giving given a microphone and a forum, and everyone's come out in the cold to hear me, uh, because I come from a big family where everyone yes. spoke at the same time and no one listened. 
Okay, well, everybody's going to listen to you tonight. I know, but some part of me is still that child that uh, didn't get a chance to speak enough or that was silenced in public spaces or felt that she wasn't intelligent enough or, or not uh, the beauty or not the chosen one in class, the one that just kind of was invisible. So the fact that uh, you're inviting me here, it's like, woohoo, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you um, have written that your ancestors emigrated to the United States during the diaspora of the Mexican Revolution, crossing the border at El Paso and relocating several times, that they were migrant farm workers at first, and later they worked on the railroad. And some of the places in this history of your family are El Paso, Flagstaff, Rocky Ford, Colorado, Kansas, ending up in Chicago. If I ask you about the spiritual or religious background of your childhood, however you would define that, what, what comes to mind? My family has different kinds of spirituality. My mother was a spiritual person, but she was very uh, suspicious of the, any organized religion. Mm -hmm. And that's because she was the one child that took after her father. And my grandfather was raised by his grandmother. And she was suspicious of church and state. Mm. And there was a reason for this, uh, this confianza, for this distrust, uh, because at that time, before the revolution, uh, the church uh, was very wealthy and exploited the poor. And my grandfather mm -hmm. was a, and his people were landless workers on land that wasn't theirs. And, and so my grandfather would tell my mother, uh, you don't have to give any money to the church. Give it to the poor, mm. you know, directly. I mean, when you say, you, you said a minute ago that everyone was always speaking at the same time in your house, and yes. you were, you had six brothers. Yes. That, yes. I mean, I think that must have tested your spiritual uh, metal. Well, you know what it taught me? I never want to share a bathroom with a man again. <laughs> mm. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, another thing it taught me is uh, I learned how to be uh, funny, with, thanks to my six brothers. Uh, I learned how to be self-critical because they were always criticizing me. So uh, you know, I learned very early on to edit myself. Uh, but I also knew if you could be fast and you could be funny, uh, people would listen. It's right. a, uh, a way of getting people to listen. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So you, you've written, I became a writer thanks to a mother who was unhappy being a mother, and that your mother searched for escape routes, and she found them in museums, the park, and the public library. And I actually, I am also just such a deep lover of libraries, and I don't think I've ever interviewed anybody where this, this jumped out. You know, I've spoken with people about how Museums, interestingly, are contemplative spaces, even in the midst of modern life. But libraries are as well. Right? Libraries are spiritual houses. Uh -huh. uh, and if you come from a crowded house where you're sleeping in the living room or sleeping in beds with four people, uh, to have a space that's quiet yeah. is remarkable. Yeah. And for me, you know, the library wasn't just a place to read but it was a place to dream and to be quiet and look out the window and look at the trees and just to feel calm because mm -hmm. I'm, um, I'm hypersensitive as a writer. The one I went to was very beautiful and more than anything, it was just like a house to nurture your spirit. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you're poor, you don't have a space of your own to go that's quiet. You've also said that um, you spent so much time in the library, it was so important to you, but the house on Mango Street that you understood when you were writing it, that this was the book you couldn't find in the library. Well, what happened um, when I was in sixth grade, uh, we moved and we were delighted by our new house. We were so thrilled that we got to go to another house where you could turn on the faucets and water came out, you know, and you could flush away the waste. It was just great improvement over our last place. So that change was important because it took me out of a neighborhood where there were 46 students in the class, right. where I had um, 
more than a dozen absent days. And in this new school, uh, a teacher uh, came up to my desk and she plucked the paper I was drawing and took it to the front of the room and my heart just did a backflip. I thought, oh no, what did I do wrong? And she held it up and then put a little pushpin through it and said, look what our new student has drawn. Look how beautiful this is. I didn't have any grades for art in this other school, so it was the first time that I was singled out for something I did that was good. And I remember that same year was also the year I started writing poetry. And Uh, so how old were you? About six, whatever you are in sixth grade. What Mm -hmm. is that? Yeah. 11, 12? 11, 12. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that same year, I went to the library, and uh, I was looking through the card catalog, looking through for something, and I came upon this card that was dirty and raggedy, and I said, oh, this must be a good book. (laughs) And then I imagined then, one day I want my name on this card catalog. And then I could see a book and the spine and my name. And I said, I couldn't see the title, but I said, this is what I want. Right. So I tell children now to see with that third eye and, and imagine what you want your future to be. In my case, I couldn't tell anyone about it because of the six brothers, and I wanted to protect this dream, <laughs> right. not have it savage. So I, I kept it a secret. But I tell children, you don't have to tell anyone, but I want you to see it and to walk towards that dream every day. And then you can say it aloud when you are in a safe place. Uh, but I think it's important that we give children that permission to mm-hmm. do that at that age or younger. It's too late if you wait too many years after that. So, you know, this this um, title, a, a House of My Own, of course, echoes of Virginia Woolf's a room. But I, I didn't see you quoting Virginia Woolf on that, but you did... Um, you have mentioned something she said, that as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. And you said that you would, you would rephrase that. And you would say, as a woman, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I am an immigrant in the entire world. Yes. And I wanted, I wanted to hear what you mean when you say that. You know, I had a postcard with that quote of Virginia Woolf when I was traveling, when my first NEA grant in my 20s, when I finished House on Mongo Street. It was very important to me, that quote, as I was learning how to travel, because I'd never gone anywhere alone. Uh, But the more I traveled, uh, the more I met women, and they befriended me, and they they never asked for anything in return the way that when men gave you something, there was always uh, ulterior motive, but not with women. And I just felt that regardless where I went, I was experiencing my father's immigrant experience, you know, what it was like for him to come across and to feel uncomfortable and to find friends among strangers and to be alone and to be taken into people's homes. You have gratitude when you're traveling and uh, you don't have a lot of money, or even if you do, if someone invites you to come into their home and and share a meal. There's a kindness in that. And I just felt... um, I understood my father's life in a different way after I made that trip. So I think I'm still at 64 trying to discover what's good for me. And uh, I'm, still, uh, I'm still an immigrant, but now I have a dual citizenship. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to cross many borders now in my life, uh, both physical and uh, spiritual. and. Uh, I'm, I'm trying as best I can because my time is running out. You know, I don't feel that I've done my best work. I don't feel I'm this, as wise as I would like to be. And it seems like you're just getting in the groove, and the party's getting really good, and it's like, I gotta go. <laughs> Why do I have to go? My father used to do that a lot when he was in his 50s and 60s. He'd say, hmm, yeah, my boy. <laughs> And I would just tease him and say, where are you going? You just got here. <laughs> so I feel like, I just got here. Pero well, ya me voy. Well, you know, so that's something else that really um, is so striking. 
in your books, in some of them at least, there's, there are a lot of photographs of you at different ages. And I feel like you... So I don't know if you think about it. So, you know, what I started writing down in my notes is the nature of time, I feel, is something that, whether you'd call it that or not, you're always attending to. And by which I also mean the many people each one of us is in the course of a lifetime. Right? The, the girl you were at 11 and the young woman at 25 and the woman at 64 and how all of those people are in relationship and they're the same person and they're not. Is that something that you've been thinking about for a long time? When I was 30, I wrote a poem that failed. And it was how I was 30, but I was also 29 and 28 and 27 and all the way till birth. Yeah. And uh, that I never finished that poem, but I wrote a story called Eleven, and I used that idea in the story. And I still feel I'm eleven underneath all the years. Right, you said you eleven know? is what you basically feel you. Yeah, that's, it's that's still your there. true age. Yeah, I still. You and know how you look at a tree, and there are some rings that had a lot of rain and gets really bigger, and they shrink. Well, you know, we can think about our own years and uh, what defined us or what happened to us in those years. Uh, but I'm still kind of like a kid, you know. My my father had this habit of like staring at at people, at things, and he would go around the block if he thought it was especially interesting. And you know, he and then he would be startled when people looked at him because I think he thought he was invisible. Right. You know? And I'm like that too. That you know, when you're 11 you're, and a girl, you are invisible. And after a certain age, women become invisible again. And that's a wonderful thing. You can grieve and say, oh, nobody looks at me anymore. You mean men. Or you can say, oh, nobody looks at me anymore. That's so great. You know, you don't have to worry anymore. You know, it's so great. I feel like someone put a knife away. And I'm so thrilled now to be invisible again. And I pay attention to other older women, especially in the town I live in, because there's a lot of señoras, muy señoras. Are you living in Mexico now, correct? You still yes. Living? Yes, okay. And las señoras se arreglan muy bien. They look really nice with their lipstick. They wore a nice dress, and nobody tells them they look nice. Mm -hmm. But I tell them, and because I see them. And I think as uh, the nice thing about being older in Mexico is that um, you get respect. As an elder. As an elder, mm -hmm. you get respect. Uh, when I come into the airport, uh, the porters with their little carritos, their little carts come up and they say, Madrecita, can I help you? <laughs> you know, so I'm little mother. And you know, what could be better in Mexico than uh, to be called the mother, who all mothers are revered in Mexico, especially La Virgen de Guadalupe, the great mother. Right. So I've had no children, but I have ascended to be a mother. To be a mother, yeah. <laughs> Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the celebrated Mexican-American writer Sandra Cisneros. I mean, this is kind of, again, moving backwards in time, but it, I was just thinking of something. You have a chapter in the house on Mongo Street called Hips. Yes. Right. This is about this moment where a woman, where your body changes and something happens to you. You know, you say, um, one day you wake up and they are there, ready and waiting like a new Buick with the keys and the ignition. <laughs> <laughs> but then you're ready to take you where, which is a question mark, because that happens to girls, but we're not really told what to do with it. Well, I think young girls especially want to look sexy, yeah. but they don't realize what that brings and the discomfort and the danger and the uh, lack of being seen for who you are. It's a lot of trouble. And I, I tried to write about it in a way that I could get past the censors when I was writing that chapter. The original title was Tits. <laughs> But I thought, if I write about that, that's too easy. And uh, you know, maybe someone in a school will say, we can't use this book. So I changed it and made it a little bit 
more challenging. Yeah. And uh, I, I like that chapter. It was a lot of fun because I was able to include uh, something that girls know, and those are the jump rope songs, the games that we mm -hmm. play, clapping, mm -hmm. part of what we learn as young women and gets lost in adulthood. So it was a way of interviewing people and saying, what game did you play when you were a kid? And how did it go? Yeah. So it was fun uh, to preserve that. Mm -hmm. So you wrote, for the 25th anniversary edition, you wrote this house, A House of My Own essay which appears in other places, but this is the kind of preface to, this, yeah. to, to the book. Yeah, this is one place where there's a picture of you. I don't know, how old are you there? I'm about 27, 20 28. I'm just fascinated with how you wrote this, so I just want to talk it through. You know, you said, this is how it begins. The young woman in this photograph is me when I was writing The House on Mongo Street. She's in her office a room that had probably been a child's bedroom when families lived in this apartment. And then there's a place where suddenly the she turns to an I. It's within a single paragraph. Um, the young woman's teaching job leads to the next, and now she finds herself a counselor recruiter at her alma mater, Loyola University on the north side in Rogers Park. And then I have health benefits. I don't bring work home anymore. My workday ends at 5 p.m. Now I have evenings free to do my own work. I feel like a real writer. And I'm just so curious about that shift that you made between her and I, she and I, and what changed? Like what happened in that, inside that paragraph? I think a writer has to come into her voice. I think a, a woman has to come into her voice because everyone speaks for us. And for me, when I was asked to write the introduction, I was studying that photograph. And, okay. I, and I knew. And you were studying your younger self. Yeah, I said, that's not who I am now. Right. But that's who I was when I was working on these pieces. So I had to talk about her as a, a she in the third person. Yeah. And uh, it, it seemed to me. Uh, I don't really like the cover of uh, House of My Own, because that's the same age, that's the same period, that's the same photographer, okay. it's the same photo shoot as the photograph. In, right. And, because when I look at her, I say, oh, que tonta. <laughs> you know, what an idiot I was. I had so much power, and I didn't know. And I gave it away. And, you know, I, I, I just... Well, I had to make all those stupid mistakes, otherwise I wouldn't be who I am now. But it breaks my heart when I look at her and I think how she was used and things that she allowed to happen to her and just the explosions that happen in our lives, the, what I call the exploding cigars of life. You know, you're just having a wonderful smoke. And then, like, well, how, did, how did that happen? You know, like that. Yeah. But you know, this is something I've thought about a lot too is there's also something in that about how we women are so merciless about our younger selves. And um, you know, one of the things, another kind of thread that runs through your life is there's a lot of fear that goes along with being a woman. A lot of things to be frightened of. I think that when you're Mexican, it's even worse mm -hmm. because you're trying to imitate white women and trying to live like a white women's feminism. And, you know, if you do that, you know, it's uh, heartbreaking because you have to break your, the people you love the most, you have to break their heart and you break your own heart because mm -hmm. you've broken theirs. And see, like, you know, if I had been a white woman living in my apartment, that would have been perfectly fine. But I was a Mexican-American woman who had to go against the person I loved the most to have that space of my own. Your father. My father. He, my brothers didn't leave home until they married. Right, you left home. They yeah, didn't leave I home. was the black yeah. sheep. So yeah. I, they, they, they had their own uh, crimes, but they kept it under, under right. wraps. You know? but, but this is what I'm saying. That younger you seized this bravery, like, right, found this bravery in herself? Um, 
I met people who were mirrors of who I wanted to become, and mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse. I think we all do when we fall in love. No, we fall in love with who we want to be, mm -hmm. and we don't really see clearly that, oh, maybe that's who you want to be, but you don't have to be, that per be with that person. And I think it's very muddied in your 20s. I think the 20s is so hard for women. I know, it's so hard, and you get told that it's your, the best years of your life. It's the and worst. It's just not true. Yeah. yeah. No, it's the worst. But I, told, I always yeah. tell my students, don't worry, it only lasts 10 years. <laughs> After a short break, more with Sandra Cisneros. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the delightful Sandra Cisneros. She writes poetically in many genres. Her beloved novels include Caramello and the iconic The House on Mango Street. This one is a favorite of many of the first-generation Latinx young people who are in our audience for this conversation at our studio in Minneapolis. I feel like that the world that you see and that you care about and are curious about is uh, in many ways, um, not in every way, but in many ways it's, it's a world that is quiet and, and mighty at once, kind of like libraries. Um, people who are leading, as we say, real lives, but lives that defy the loudness. I mean, so an example is somebody you write about, Maria Luisa Camacho de Lopez. Oh, yes. Also known as Mrs. Eddie Lopez. Yes. So talk about her. Like somebody, that, somebody like that is in the world, and for you, that's also the story of the world. Well, this is the people I love. You know, people I know who aren't history, and they won't be in a history book, or they won't get in a museum. Right. That's what I mean by quiet. And they're great, and they're doing selfless work. Mrs. Camacho de Lopez was my mentor in textiles and in Mexican folk art and in Mexican customs. And I met her at a friend's wedding because she came in como una reina, like a queen, wearing a Mexican repeal and a big flower in her hair. She was a big woman, but she was beautiful. And we looked and said, who's that? Oh, who is that? And we went up to her and said, you know, con permiso, uh, we would like to meet you. And she said, oh, soy la señora Camacho de Lopez. And we just, we just loved her. We adored her instantly. And she was very generous and kind. She turned out to be like the walking Smithsonian of like Mexican culture in her little neighborhood. And she would uh, teach people how to say the prayers for the rosary. She would tell you how you set up the Day of the Dead altar. Right. You know, and she would just come in. She was like the the gran bruja, you know, the shamana that comes in of, the, of light. And uh, I just learned from her so much. And uh, I think one of the great things in my life was the story she gave me mm -hmm. that became Caramelo. She was the daughter of, of a reboso maker, a shawl maker. And I borrowed that to uh, create my character, the awful grandmother. But uh, more than anything, she had such a pride in being who she was. And her husband was a, a San Antonian of Mexican descent. And this couple, their house became a cultural center. Anybody who wanted to come in and learn something, it was a very tiny little house next to the HEB grocery store. And everybody would come in, and you know they were just uh, people of great spirit. 
Yeah. And I think that those are kinds of people that we need to remember and we need to tell their stories. We need to record their lives. Otherwise, they don't count. They're not history. And everybody right. knows people like that. And, yes. You know, if we don't tell their story, then uh, Ken Burns will write about it and, and miss them completely. <laughs> um, uh, right? <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, it's so important to just say aloud uh, as often as possible that most of the interesting and important people who are, in fact, changing the world are not famous and will never be famous. And they're not MacArthur geniuses, no. and they never got an NEA. No, like you. Um, mm -hmm. You have struggled with depression, and that, that's something that you write about. I mean, it's, it's been I talk of, about it, and too. You talk about you it. Know, I'm not ashamed of it or mm -hmm. proud, but mm -hmm. it just is, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that uh, before, uh, before I knew what it was, I was so ashamed. And I don't want people to be ashamed and go through uh, yeah. near death, as I did. You did. You talk about, was it in 1987? It was kind of yes. a 10-month period of the dark night of the soul. Yes, very dark. And you know, it's because I already had House on Mongo Street uh, out, but people don't realize that wasn't an overnight success. You know, the book, I finished it in 1982, got published two years later, and then I went through a really dark period where uh, I realized even though I'm good at creating uh, writing that people love, I can't pay my rent with that. And I can't uh, uh, I don't know how to sustain myself. I, I can't earn a living with my writing, so what good is that? Yeah. And uh, of course, when you can't find a job and then you find one that you feel you're a failure at, you, you spin into a, a deeper depression. Uh, I never wanted to teach at the university because I didn't feel comfortable there as a student. And I felt obligated to uh, in that year. Someone uh, opened a door for me and I couldn't find a job in Texas and I was forced to go to California and take a job that I was terrified of. So of course, when you come in as a guest, a writer, they give you the the classes that nobody wants and uh, reluctant students, mm -hmm. the students that are not necessarily interested in English. And, and uh, so I had a very hard time. And all of that failure just kept building and building until I, I just felt that I couldn't go on. Mm -hmm. And you describe yourself now um, spiritually as a Buddha lupist. A Buddha lupista, that's what Buddha I mean. lupista. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you said that this, there was this conversion that was subtle over time, not some moment, and that kind of living with depression and working through that. Um, well, you know, when you go through a near-death experience, as I did, you keep thinking, oh, my, what if I'm successful and destroy myself next time around? Mm -hmm. So I, I uh, consciously sought uh, teachers uh, women, uh, books about women in depression, books about women in the arts, books about uh, working class people in uh, the academy. Uh, and I, I sought out a therapist and I found an intuitive. And I started, uh, I guess I started finding that self I would have found if my grandmother, the one that was new things, had yeah. been alive. She could have guided me. Uh, so I started discovering intuitives and slowly realizing, oh, I have those gifts too. Um, I think if we had been raised in with our indigenous grandmothers, that we would know that, yeah, everybody flies around when they're sleeping and you come back gently. And sometimes we can problem solve when we're dreaming. And some of us have gifts of visiting the, the, the dead and the dead come to visit us. And everybody has that potential. It's not like someone's greater than someone else. It's just we have to learn how to develop it. Mm -hmm. And would you talk a little bit about and how you work with like all the things that happen to one in a lifetime and the stages you go through. What is that noise? Is it? Is it your heating system? <laughs> no, no, no. It's in the speaker. It's some. It's oh, just... I had a house like that, and the radio would go. On. The radiator <laughs> would so go on. It was like some some crazy neighbor banging on that metal. Yeah. Um, well, while, while we're waiting for that, tell us about your your. How many tattoos do you have? I'm sorry. How many tattoos do you have? Two. Two. <laughs> you've written so interestingly about your tattoos, like coming back to this idea of time travel as something that joins you with the younger generation. You know, I didn't know that. You know, I just uh, 
did it to be subversive because um, <laughs> when my, one of my books came out, I don't know which one, uh, Hispanic Magazine wanted to put me on the cover. And my agent knows how I feel about that word. So uh, she said, well, what do you think how we're going to How do you gonna... feel about what? I don't like it. You don't like being on the cover? I don't mind being on the cover. I just don't like the word Hispanic. Oh, you don't like the word Hispanic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, ain't Hispanic. You know, but some people feel they are. That's fine, but I don't, and I have my reasons. So uh, what word do you like? I'm, or do you not I'm like a Latina, I'm Mexican-American, I'm American, I'm Mexican. I'm from Las Americas, North and South. Okay. That's what I feel mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, to me, it was just a word that, you know, you know how one day you went to sleep, and the next day, all over town, there were these little machines that said, USA Today. And it was that word came up like that, you know, right. overnight. Right. And it wasn't something that was organic for my community. So I, I, I felt uh, a resistance to it. Um, it's different from hispano, you know, but I didn't use hispano. You know, that was not a word from my community. Um, but anyway, we have issues with that word. My agent knew I had that issue. Uh, and then we had an opportunity to be on the cover, and she said, what do you think we're going to do? And I said, we will be on the cover, but I'll figure out a way to make it work for me. So I thought, maybe I'll wear a hat, and it'll say, you know, Latina. <laughs> you know? Right. But then I thought, no, that could get cropped. And then I had someone um, paint a, a tattoo on my arm, and it said, uh, I think it said Pura Latina, I think. <laughs> But I liked it so much, I said, oh, I'll get a real tattoo there. And I said, well, I'm not, the issue isn't about Latina. The issue is something that is permanent and that is important in my life now. Mm-hmm. And for me, the Virgen de Guadalupe is important. And Esther Hernandez, the uh, Chicana artist, designed it blending Guadalupe with uh, Kuan Yin and blending her with uh, other goddesses. So she's kind of a, a composite of several diosas. But my mother didn't like it. You know, she uh, one day looked at me and she said, that's the dumbest thing you ever did. I said, Ma, having eight kids was the dumbest thing you ever did. <laughs> and a lot more work. She, she left the room after that <laughs> She had eight live births, seven survived. Mm-hmm. And she lost a child when it was over a year old, so mm-hmm. it was devastating to her. Mm-hmm. And I just kept telling her, Ma, why didn't you, you know, you were in the hospital so many times, why didn't you just say, tie up those tubes while you're at it, you know? But uh, she never did. I, she was a product of her generation, mm-hmm. so it wasn't something that uh, one did at that time. It's, it, it, it's been, it was such, a, such an act of, of rebellion for you, to not only not marry, but, but be alone, be... Well, you know what? It took me a long time to realize that it's uh, more lonely to live with someone sometimes than it is to be alone. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I live alone now, but I'm not lonely. Right. And I feel right. very right. loved it's a by, choice. by the universe yes. and the trees and, yes. and the clouds and the sky and the sunsets and my dogs and the mm-hmm. people who are in my life and my students. I don't feel lonely. There's a lot of women in my town who are always looking in the horizon, you know, for that next guy that's coming, coming around the bend. But I don't feel that. I feel a sense of, of contentment and joy mm-hmm. and... Uh, it's hard to live with somebody. Yeah. It's hard to live alone, but it's easier to but live it's alone. Also hard to, yeah. <laughs> um, and I do love that your father, who always, I mean, it, it just sounds like I mean, he, he couldn't have imagined that a daughter wouldn't marry, right, when you were a child. And, but that, that eventually there came a point where he actually was so he took in your independence and how complete you were. Well, you know, the first thing he did when he came in my house that I bought with my pen, he, he jumped up and down and said, look, the boards creak. <laughs> and he just found fault with everything. And, and then eventually he saw I had a housekeeper, I had a gardener, that I had an assistant, I had people that helped me. And he said at the end of his life, you know, um, 
that I had done well. We, we made our peace with one another. Mm-hmm. And I had this selfish prayer that my father would live long enough to understand why I had lived the way I did, why I had made those sacrifices, why I had slept on the floor for 10 years and lived out of boxes and moved and, and traveled so much following jobs so that I could uh, support the writing, that the writing became the spouse. It was a difficult spouse and still is. <laughs> It still is a difficult spouse, but it's a very faithful spouse, you know. And there's sometimes that we don't speak to each other. <laughs> and sometimes that I just don't understand that spouse. But uh, it's a union for life. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the celebrated Mexican-American writer Sandra Cisneros in a room full of Latina teenagers. Let's open this up. My name is Iglali, and I'm thankful that you're here. And Thank you. Um, one question I have is why do you choose poems and books? Like, how did it inspire you? Why did I choose the form of poetry? Mm-hmm. In, in which books? Yeah. In all my books? Oh, well, do you write poetry? I love poetry. <laughs> yes, good. Well, then you know we need to write poetry. Poetry is the most difficult to me of all the the literary genres and the most important, especially right now when we're going through so much pain. I think the poets are in the profession of uh, transforming grief to light. They're like our shamanes. And they're also in the profession of telling the truth because you can't write a poem unless you tell your truth. It isn't a poem if it isn't a truth. And we're living in a time of so much confusion and lies and counter lies and people saying that's fake and that's true, that there's so much confusion about what's true. So the poets are uh, in the forefront right now doing important business. This is a great time for poetry. I think we're living in a renaissance of poetry and we need the poets right now to help us illuminate the path in a time of confusion. And for me, poetry is uh, illumination, especially when my spirit is clouded and I don't have the language. I try when I write fiction to write each line as beautiful as if it was a poem. The direction and the process is a little different, but I try to marry the two, prose and poetry. And uh, I think poetry is medicine that we need right now at this time, this dark time that we're living in the United States. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Um, A woman of the Americas. Um, What words of wisdom would you give to our young people these days? I would tell the young people to earn their own money. (laughs) Most important, you can't follow your dream if someone else is giving you your money. Two, control your fertility. No excuses, men and women. You can get thrown off your brilliant careers because of an unwanted pregnancy. And so that's important. Number three, uh, solitude is sacred. We tend to think that we have to have a partner or we have to be out every night. But the time that you're alone or when you think that you're unpopular, you don't have a date or you're at home, that time is for you to nurture you. So think about what a gift it is when you're alone because that's your time to nurture you. So earn your own money, control your fertility, Solitude is sacred. That's the advice I give young people. Hi, 
I'm Coco. Um, speaking of using your book in the school, we just read your book as our final project for the end of the quarter. And we had like, at the end of the book, we had a 45 minute discussion about the book, but we spent the majority of it trying to figure out why you didn't use quotations in the book because a lot of kids were like, oh my God, this is so hard to read. I don't understand why we didn't do it. So wait a second, wait a second. I read your papers. You don't use quotation marks either. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just wondering I, I, why I know. you did I've use taught it. in the school. But let me tell you the reason I'll tell you why. I'm just being funny with you. I didn't use quotation marks because I wanted the sentences to work like poems. And I if I had quotation marks you had to read it one way, but if the quotation mark isn't there then you can use it you can read it and understand it in more than one way. And because they're so small, I wanted flexibility with each sentence. Also, I didn't like that it would clutter up the, the way it looked, so I tried to make it as clean as possible. But I read a lot of experimental writers when I was a young woman, and I wanted to write a book that wasn't like the books that I had seen. I later would discover there were other writers that were doing story cycles, but when I started mine, I didn't know about them. But I thought, if I move the punctuation and make it as minimal as possible, of course you have to use punctuation, but I tried to make it as minimal as possible, there would be more ways that one could read that sentence. Okay? Hi, um, my name's Gabby. Um, I'm from Detroit, so I came all the way here to see you. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, um, I love your writing, so thank you for being here. Um, my question is, so I grew up with two brothers, and I totally get where you're coming from, like you kind of have to scream to be heard, um, and just be quick, because that's how you just get heard. Um, so my question to you is, how different do you think you would be, or your life would be, if you grew up either with sisters, or if you were just a solo kid? You know, uh, my sister that passed away as a baby, uh, I often wonder how my life would have been different had she lived, uh, because I had... Um, uh, my father's attention. I was my father's daughter, and I was treated very special by my father. Uh, so I often wonder about that. If, if it would have been a space I would have to share with my sister. Uh, I, I don't know how that would be, but I have women in my life who are my sisters. You know, my friend Yasna in, in Sarajevo, and my cousin Licha, who appeared in House on Mongo Street as my cousin Licha, and then she got younger and younger and became Nanny. I, I, on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't have become a writer because the writing came from my loneliness as an only daughter. Uh, and I also spend a lot of time you know, talking to trees, and uh, that allowed me to become a poet. I think people who talk to trees are destined to become artists. I, I meant to say this when we began to speak. If, if you just feel called to read anything, a poem or a piece of your writing, you don't have to, and it's kind of late, but. Well, I do want to say something. I feel that it's very important for all of us to uh, speak in this time. I hope that my speaking tonight will motivate each of you to write the planet, to do something positive, even if that means only treating everyone you meet tonight and tomorrow and the day after as human beings. I think I might read uh, something, some Adelante, words of you. I would love to hear you. Okay. Um, which follows on that. And I cannot remember where I found this, but you said, I don't know anything, but I know this. Whatever is done with love in the name of others without self-gain, whatever is done with the heart on behalf of someone or something, be it a child, animal, vegetable, rock, person, cloud, Whatever work we make with complete humility will always come out beautifully, and something more valuable than fame or money will come. This I know. Yes, House on Mango Street taught me that, and I share it with everyone. It, it's true. Some people do it with their students, some people with their children, but I wrote House when I was in a moment of powerlessness, and I think we feel that way now, but that's always us. Um, a sacred time when our heart is being broken. We're in a state of grace. We're being open to feel things 
deeply. And I think the United States is living with its heart split in two right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, the Sufis say God breaks the heart again and again until it stays open. So maybe we're living that time. Sandra Cisneros, thank you so much for your work and for being with us tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. Sandra Cisneros' books include The House on Mango Street, Caramello, and a memoir, A House of My Own. Her work has been lauded in many ways, including with the MacArthur Genius Award, the Texas Medal of Arts, the National Medal of Arts, and the Penn Nabokov Award for International Literature. Special thanks this week to Roxana Linares, Nati Bibiana Hels, Sherilyn Fisher, and all of the staff and community at Centro Tyrone Guzman. And Monica Vega, the wonderful artist who transformed our space and created our Day of the Dead altar. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambalay, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Sheck, Christiane Wartell, and Julie Seipel. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.